I want to remind us all of our mission. Our mission, our mission here at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want everybody to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and then live uh, your life for Him because God come in the flesh. What else are you going to do with your life? That's the best decision you could ever make. We are going to begin a new series today, okay? And this new, oh, new series is called Thou Shall, Thou Shall, The Ten Commandments, Okay, so that is a series we're going to be in today and also for the next nine um, weeks coming, Lord willing. So the text today, if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, a sermon I'm calling, Have No Other Gods Before Me. Before we get into this sermon, um, I have a good friend of mine that, that sent me something. Now, I've been planning to do this series for like a year or more, and finally, this is time, it's right, okay, going to lead us right up to Christmas, and this friend of mine, uh, back, we were, we were close in California, but then I moved to Wyoming, he moved to Texas, so we just don't see each other all that much anymore, haven't seen each other in years, but he still texts and calls, he sent me this, I believe it was two weeks ago, if you could put it up on, on the screen, this is exactly what he sent me, this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Now, I'm getting ready to preach, the, preach this sermon series, and this is what he sent me, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. The Charles, uh, Spurgeon said, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot drive the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send it through the law, uh, the needle of the law to make a way for it. Woo, Spurgeon can preach. Man, that rings so true. And I just think, that was the sovereignty of God. That my, shout out to Paul Hazlett, um, that, that you would send me this right before I, I preach through the Ten Commandments. So, thank you, Paul. Um, so, with that, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And really, to understand what we're going to read here, you have to understand everything that came before it. Well, first, the book of Exodus is the second in five books. It's called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so this is one of the penta, meaning five, five books. This is the second book in the Pentateuch. Now, there was a movie in 2014 that was made by this name called the Exodus. And if you get a chance to see it, don't. Just skip that. It's two hours of your life. You'll never get back. It was horrible. But anyways, <laughs> the Ten Commandments is right in the middle of that second book of Exodus. And, and, and again, really, you need to understand Genesis and halfway through Exodus to really understand what we're going about to read here in, in Exodus. The story really begins with God. And really, that's how every story begins. God, he created the heavens and earth. Well, God creates the heavens and earth, eventually he makes man and, and woman and put this in this ideal spot called the Garden of Eden, and, and they sinned. Sin came into this world, and sin reigned in, in men's hearts ever since. But along that way, after that, God calls a man by the name of Abraham. And he, he calls him, and it's through him and his wife, Sarah, they were going to have a, a blessing of a son. And they have a son named Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And this is the book of Genesis. Now, if you were raised in a dysfunctional family, read the book of Genesis. And it should really pick you up because this is a dysfunctional family. The family of God. They're, they're not squeaky clean individuals. Okay. Well, Jacob eventually goes on to have many sons. And one of the younger sons is a son by the name of Joseph. And Joseph is his favorite son. Now, word to the dads, 
It's not a good thing to have a favorite son, favorite child of any kind. Bad things happen when you play favorites. Well, that is this dysfunctional family. Well, Joseph is also a bit of a snot-nosed kid who kind of thinks he's better than his brothers, and he lets his brothers know that. And so they decide to bump him off. We're going to kill Joseph. And fortunately, one of the brothers says, hey, you know, slow down. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. So they throw him in a pit and eventually sell him to some guys that are traveling by, and they're on their way to Egypt. And then they eventually cover up their brother's death by telling dad that, hey, your favorite son was eaten by wild animals. Discovered that he can interpret dreams. Really, God is the one that's interpreting these dreams, and he's speaking through Joseph. And then, lo and behold, who has a dream that needs to be interpreted but Pharaoh? And so they bring Joseph, and they have him interpret the dream, and, and God tells Joseph, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be years of, of plenty, and then it's followed by years of famine. And so Joseph says, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to get ready for those years of famine. And so they start storing up food, getting ready, and then eventually the famine comes. And Egypt, who was already probably the most powerful nation in the world, becomes even more powerful because they've got all the food. They've got all the food, and eventually Joseph's brothers have to make their way down to Egypt to get food, and because they're starving to death, of course. And eventually, um, there's this reconciliation where Joseph dis- uh, reveals to his brothers that, that he's the one they sold into slavery. And so it's a story of forgiveness and reconciliation, and eventually they bring their father Jacob down, and there's this family reunion, and, um, and so Joseph invites his father and his brothers all to move down to Egypt so they can be together and he can provide for them during the famine. Fast forward 400 plus years, and that is where Genesis ends and Exodus begins, If you don't know this, there's over a 400-year gap of time between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. So lo and behold, there's a new Pharaoh. There's a new Pharaoh, and the the people of God have been multiplying for all these generations, and now there's millions of them. But the new Pharaoh, he's not real fond of the Jewish people. In fact, he hates the Jewish people. He despises the Jewish people, and eventually he enslaves the Jewish people. And so for the Jewish people, they're in misery For generations, for generations, the people of God know nothing other than slavery until eventually they reach a point where they can't take anymore. And they cry out to God and they beg for deliverance and God hears their prayers and he answers them. And God determines that he will be the one to set his people free. And God chooses to work through a man named Moses. Now, Moses is representing and foreshadowing the coming of Jesus because Jesus will stand between us and the Father, and he will speak God's truth to us. And so Moses is the man that, that, that represents Jesus. So if you don't know this, I hope you know this. And so it's good to know this, that Moses was a deeply flawed man. Okay? He was a man that lost his temper and killed a man. He was a man that had a stuttering problem. He was also a bit of a coward. And this is the man that God chooses to deliver his his people through? You see, God does that because God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And when God does extraordinary things through ordinary people, God gets the glory. Because every time God does that, people know that there's no way that that human being did that because they're so ordinary. And so when God uses people like Moses, people like me, people like you... God is the one that ends up getting the glory. 
And so Moses is told by God, he says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. But here's the deal. No one comes into the presence of Pharaoh and tells him what to do because he thinks he is God. No one comes into his presence and says, I demand that you do this. But that's exactly what God tells Moses to do. He says, go tell Pharaoh, first, that he's not God. And the one true God is not real happy with the way that he's treating the family of God. And so go tell the false God that the real God says, let my people go. Let my people go so that they will be free to worship me. Freedom is the real issue. Freedom is the real issue at hand. Freedom is not the ability to to do what you want to do. Freedom is the ability to worship in the way that God created you to worship. God tells Moses, I want my people to be free to worship me. And if Pharaoh will not let them go, well, then it's going to end very, very bad for Pharaoh. Now, God is very loving and very kind and very compassionate and, and very patient. He's even like this with a godless man like Pharaoh. And he's that way with you and I too. And so Moses keeps inviting Pharaoh, submit to the real God, walk away from your own sin. And yet the Bible says that Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. So let me ask you a question, church. Do you have a hard heart? Do you? Because some of us, would, we would read about Pharaoh and what's going on, and we, we would think, how can Pharaoh be such a knucklehead? How can Pharaoh keep doing this, and then yet we do the same exact thing as Pharaoh did? You see, Pharaoh wanted to do what Pharaoh wanted to do, and he didn't want the real God telling him what to do. That's exactly what a hard heart is. And if you and I were being honest, we have done the same exact thing at least a couple dozen times. To minimize it. We've probably done it a couple thousand times. The Bible says in addition to Pharaoh hardening his own heart, God hardened his heart. And so that is the first 19 chapters of Exodus. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're thinking, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He did it through love and grace and patience and kindness. You know, there's an old saying that says, the the same sun that melts wax also hardens the clay. You see, it's all about how we respond to the sun. This time I mean sun, S-O-N, not S-U-N. Because some of us hear from God and we just melt. We're like, I'm wrong, God. I'm wrong. You're right. I need to repent. I'm sorry. That's, That's some of our hearts. And some of us, we harden. We say, no, I will not change. I will not relent. I will not repent. I will not say I'm sorry. You're not God. I'm God. I'm a better God than the one true God. That is hardness of heart. And so what God does in this instance, he sends plague after plague after plague. There's flies and and gnats and frogs, rivers of blood. They're, They're terrible. And so these plagues, they're harming the people of Egypt and they're destroying the economy. They're just destroying lives. And the nation of Egypt, they're really suffering. And it reaches a crescendo with the death of the firstborn male child. The firstborn male, the firstborn son, that is particularly important in that culture. Because the firstborn son, that's the retirement plan. 
The firstborn son is the 4OK that's supposed to take care of you when you're too old to take care of yourself. And so God says, if you will not let my people go, then I will take some of your people. And so Pharaoh hardened his heart, and the Bible says, in a night, death came. And the firstborn male child, the son in every household, died. Okay, question. I expect some, some feedback here. This is going to all the guys in the audience. How many for you, you're the eldest male child? Raise your hand. No, really, raise your hand. Tell me, hi, you're the firstborn. Okay, look around. Everyone look around the room. Dead in a night. That's how it works. The firstborn male child, all of them, dead in one night. And, and don't think of just, just one, one, one family. Okay, think of what happens if that happened to an entire nation. Because for an entire nation, all the firstborn male childs were dead. Think of all the mothers that were grieving. But yet there was one exception. There's one exception where the firstborn male child, they didn't, they didn't die. And it's ones that, that express faith. And they participated in something called the Passover. Okay? God pours out his wrath, but yet he provides a way of an escape for his wrath to pass over us. The families, that would, what they would do is they would take a lamb. And that lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. It's symbolizing sinless, sinless perfection. And they would take that lamb and they would acknowledge their sin before God. And they would take a knife and they would slit the neck of the lamb. And the blood would pour it out on the ground. And then they would take a hyssop branch and they would dip it in the blood of the lamb. And they would paint their doorpost in such a way that the blood would run down. And it looked exactly the same as the blood that ran down when Jesus was on the cross. They, 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 they did this to publicly show that they belonged to the Lord. And so they took the blood of the lamb and they, they did this. And so then when the death angel came, the death angel would pass over the home. And they, they, this, they passed over the home because they had repented their sin and it demonstrated the shed blood of the lamb. Now this all points to Jesus because there is no Passover without Jesus. He is the one that alone is sacrificed for the sins of the world. He alone is the substitute. He alone is the very Lamb of God. He alone is the one who was slain. He alone is the one that causes the wrath of God that's coming upon us to pass over. And so God delivers His nation. God liberates His people. So what God did is He set the family of God free. And now there's a nation of a few million former slaves that are free... But they're not living free. You see, what they're doing is they're committing adultery. And they're stealing from one another. And they're coveting. And they're lying. And they're raising their children not to love the Lord. And they're also worshiping false gods other than the one true God. They're, they're, though they are free, they've chosen not to live free. And so what's going to happen? God's going to speak to them. God's going to speak to them. God's going to be loving, and God's going to be gracious, and God's going to be kind and merciful. And just as he was with Pharaoh, he's going to be to his people, just like he is with you and me. And so that brings us to the Ten Commandments. And so, so many people, they read the Ten Commandments like a checklist. You have to do these things. But if you don't read the text in its context, well, then really you just have pretext. And you can make the text mean anything you want it to mean. 
Because so many people think this relationship with God is just a checklist. It's not. That's not a relationship with God. In the context of Exodus, God's already loved his people, right? God's already served his people. God's already set his people free. God has taken these people and he's adopted them into his family. So it's not about obeying God so that he will love you. It's about him already loving you. And so you obey him to demonstrate your love back to him. Context is so very important. So we can't ignore Genesis and the first 19 chapters of Exodus and just jump into the Ten Commandments and think we're going to get it right. So we have to think, we have to understand that. So with that, let's read Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so here, it is God who is speaking. And maybe you're one of the ones that says, I don't really like the Ten Commandments. Well, then your problem's not really with me. Your problem's with God, and you should take it up with God. Because this is God who is speaking to Moses, and by extension, he's speaking to every single one of us. God starts by telling us exactly who he is. Because here's the truth. Apart from Scripture, we would have no idea who God is. Because the trillions and trillions of times that someone has conjured up a God, we always come up with a God other than the one true God. So if God had not given us his word, we would never know who he is. But fortunately for us, he's a God that wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to tell us who he is. Uh, And he says here, he says, I am the Lord, your God. That tells us he's a very personal God. He says, I'm Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, the problem is slavery. The solution is God. The problem is always slavery. The solution is always God, and that's never going to change. So what God does here is he gives them the law. How many here, no, no hands, how many not real excited about the law? And you have to tell me. But for today and the next nine Sundays, we're going to go through the law with a fine-tooth comb. We're going to look at the fine print with a magnifying glass, looking at every detail. And then we're going to apply it to our lives. How many of you, when you download a new app to your phone, there's always that thing, terms of agreement. And you go on it and you just go to the end of the page and you just go, agree. How many? Yeah, yeah, we all do that. We don't read it. Well, through this this, uh, sermon series, we're going to read it all. Okay, we're going to read it all. So what happens is God gathers his, his family. God gathers the family at the, mount of, uh, uh, the base of Mount Sinai, and he comes down to talk to them, to give them his laws. Now, he's not saying, if you do these things, I will let you be in my family. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I've already adopted you, and I need you to do these things. You know why? Because I love you. I love you, and these things are good for you, and they're also good for other people. You see, the part that we struggle with the law is, if you take the law and you disconnect it from the lawgiver, then we misunderstand the heart of the law, okay? That's why the Pharisees, hundreds of years later, they would love the law so much, but they don't know the Lord, because they love the law, but they don't know the Lord, The Hebrew word for law is Torah, and the whole Old Testament 
all written in Hebrew. And so we, sometimes there's some words that we have a difficult time translating to English, but, so we translate it law. But it's not a bad word. In, my, in our minds, we think law, that means bad. Law, that means rules that have to be followed. If I don't follow these laws, I get a ticket, or if it's bad enough, I go to jail. That's what we think. But the word Torah, it's really a word that a father gives to his son and says, this is how you need to live in order to have a great life, a flourishing life, and I want you to have a great life. You know, for parents, all the parents in the room, we don't just drop law on our kids, do we? We sit them down, we look them in the eye, and we say, I love you. I love you. I can't love you anymore. I'll never love you any less, no matter what you do, because you're my kid and I love you. And we say, well, we want your life to be amazing, and we want you to be blessed, and, and so we're going to talk about some things. Isn't that what we do with our kids? We're going to talk about some things. We don't just lay down the law. We tell them these things because we don't want them to suffer, and we don't want them to do stuff that is harmful. You see, that's the father's heart. And if you separate the father's heart from the law, then you end up asking questions like, was God even good? Does God even love me? Does God even care? Or is God just some faraway dictator that has, has rules for my life? And if I don't obey them, well, then I go to hell. That's what we think. But when God gives us his law, we, and we don't see him as a father, then we don't see how much he loves us. And so then what we do is we all together reject a loving father who just wants a great life for his kids. So I want you to think of the law of God as like a plank on a fence. And the next law, another plank, and another, another, another. And so when God gives us a law, it's like a fence that's supposed to keep us away from things that are harmful. And to keep us away from those things that's not going to end well for us in the end. Jesus says this in Luke 24, verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. It says, And then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I want you to know the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. It's all a foreshadowing about Jesus. And the New Testament, it's all about Jesus the whole Bible, this whole thing, what's it about? It's about Jesus, the whole thing. And so if we read the Old Testament, we need to understand this is a foreshadowing of his coming. It's explaining his victory. And it's also preparing us for Jesus' return. You know Jesus is coming back? He is. Amen. I can't wait. I think today would be a good day, but he doesn't work on my timetable. The whole Bible is about Jesus. That's what he said in that Luke passage. But the law, it shows us a need for the Savior. So as we read the law, we need to realize God is holy, and God is perfect, and God is good, and He has some demands for me. And here's the deal. I've fallen short, and you've fallen short, and we've all fallen short of the law, and we've failed Him, and that's called sin. Sin is transgressing the law, and every single one of it has done this. And so then Jesus comes in, and he's the Savior, and he fulfills the law perfectly. He lives in complete obedience to the law, and then he dies in my place, which causes the wrath of God to pass over me if I, if I place saving faith in Jesus. This is what the Bible calls the good news. Now, the people in the Exodus, did they free themselves? No, they didn't. 
They couldn't free themselves. They didn't participate in their deliverance, did they? No, they had to be set free. And this saves, shows us how Jesus saves. It's not about us working for our salvation. Jesus did it all. So Jesus is a greater Moses because he's the one that fulfills the law. And Jesus is a greater Passover lamb because he removes the wrath of God from us. And Jesus is the greater firstborn son who died for our sins and none of his own sins. And Jesus is the greater savior who redeems not a few million people, but several billion people, not from one nation, but from all nations. And Jesus is the greater lawgiver, not in the writing of his law on stone, but the writing of the law on the hearts. And he gives us a new heart when he replaces his heart of stone and gives us a, law, a heart of flesh. That's Jesus. So I need you to see this. When you go to the law, see what you failed to do. And when you see what you failed to do, see what Jesus did and what Jesus wants for you and what Jesus can do in you and what Jesus can do through you. That's what we should see when we see the law. And so that means when you're tempted with sin, when you're tempted to sin, you need to understand the Father's heart. That God is a Father. And there's some of us in this room that never had a father. Or if he had a father, he wasn't a very good father. But the Bible says that God the Father is a father to the fatherless. So, so when your father says, when God the Father says, hey, don't do that. Remember the heart of the Father. Don't just look at the law, but we need to look at the face of the lawgiver who is God. The Apostle Peter says this. He says, whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved to. And some of you would say something along the lines of, hey, this issue with slavery, that's really interesting, but I'm not a slave. I've never been a slave. I never will be a slave. So this whole sermon series doesn't apply to me, so I'll see you in about nine weeks when you're done with this. Because the land of the free, after all, excuse me, the United States, after all, it's a land of the free, right? That's what we say. Or is it the land of slaves? Is it the land of slaves? Because Peter says anything that overcomes you, anything that that overtakes you, anything that rules over you, anything that reigns in your life, that's your Pharaoh. That's your master. And you're a slave to it. That's what, what Peter would say. Today we don't use words like slavery. We don't like that word. So what we do is we use terms like addiction. Addiction is a secular term for a very biblical concept, which is slavery. So today, the person says, I'm addicted to alcohol. No, you're not. You're a slave to alcohol. Today, we say, I'm addicted to pornography. No, you're not. You're a slave to pornography. I'm addicted to drugs. No, you're not. You're a slave to drugs. I'm addicted to my own reputation. No, actually, you're a slave to the, to the God that you worship that appears in the mirror to you every day when you brush your teeth. Hey, I'm driven by my income. No, you're a slave to your money. Hey, I have to maintain my beauty. No, you're a slave to your appearance. You see, we're all slaves. And some of you would say, I'm free to choose. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you have not been born again, then you have no freedom at all. You're still a slave. You see, but if you're a believer, when you're tempted with sin, you hear the Holy Spirit convicting you in your heart, don't do that, don't do that. The conscience of the law that God writes in your heart, it it tells you not to act like that, not behave like that. 
And so that's God reminding you, you're free. You don't have to live like that. You see, what the Father wants is do you not suffer. So we need to remember, when we're tempted to sin, to choose to sin is to choose to suffer. Did you hear that? To choose to sin is to choose to suffer. And the Father doesn't want you to suffer. But God sets us free. Just some of us choose not to live free. Do you know any Christians like that? Don't raise your hands. We all do. They're stuck. They're like in this hamster wheel going round and round and round. They're going like crazy, but they're not getting anywhere. That's what sin is in our life. Well, at this point in Exodus, the children of God are exactly like that. They're literally walking in circles in, in, the, in the, the wilderness for decades. And God comes and he speaks to them and he wants them to obey him and walk with him so they might walk away from destruction and walk away from things that are harmful and walk with him in faithfulness. How many of you, it's not somebody you're thinking of, it's actually you. Don't raise your hands. You're ashamed. You're embarrassed. You're horrified. You're mortified. Maybe there's some secret sins in your life that if anybody finds about that, you'd be crushed. And you would say that you're a Christian. You would say that you worship God. You believe in the Bible, but there's parts in your life that you're just ashamed of. Each and every single one of us, we're all wearing shackles at one time in our life. And what happens is if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit comes in and he highlights that. He puts a spotlight on that. Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it pornography? Whatever the case may be. That's exactly the condition that the children of God are having. And God comes and he has a meeting with them at the base of Mount Sinai. They're having a meeting with dad. That's what's going on. You're thinking, what is dad going to say? What's he going to say to us? The first commandment. He tells us that he is God. He's the God that sets them free so they can live free. And he says it this way, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment, first commandment, God has to teach his kids the most important thing. And the most important thing is, hey kids, there's one God. That's exactly where God starts. It all begins, it all rises and falls with the the fact that there's only one God. And here's the deal, we're not God. We're not Now, the issue is, okay, you've been set free, but you're not living free. We were in slavery. We've left Egypt. We've been freed, but we're still committing adultery. We're still lying. We're still stealing. We're still coveting. We're still throwing these weird little parties. And there's some guy over there that's got a plan for a golden calf. He's saying, hey, bring me your earrings and nose rings. That's what's going on there. This isn't going real well. God freed his people, but they're not living free. What does dad say? Dad says, okay, kids, listen to me. First thing first, I'm God, okay? You're not God. Nobody else is God. Nothing else is God. I'm God. That's it. That's the first commandment. You see, you can't live free until you realize there's only one God, and you're not it. So this is going to blow some of your minds. Okay, um, Pastor John's about to just sit your mind on tilt. Are you ready? Some of you need to write this down. Here we go. You're not the center of the universe. I know, right? That just blew some of your mind. Okay, you're not the most important person in the universe. 
The reason you're miserable is because you're worshiping yourself. And you were never meant to worship yourself. You were made to worship God. You were made to enjoy Him, to know Him. You were made to glorify Him with your life. And when you make yourself the center of the universe, you choose to make yourself miserable. So what God doesn't say, God doesn't say, hey, you're the most important thing. That's not what God says, right? God said, I made you, I love you, but you're not the most important thing in the universe. God says that he and he alone is God. Everyone and everything else is not God. So what God is saying, he's saying, okay, since I'm God, uh, since I'm the center of your life, let's talk about your worship. Hey, since I'm God and you're not, let's talk about your money. Hey, since I'm God and you're not, let's talk about your marriage. Let's talk about your possessions. Let's talk about your kids. Let's talk about your sex life. That's what God is saying. Because like our life is like this wagon wheel. God is the center and every single thing ties to God. It's it. So here's the question. How many gods is there? One. There's one God. And there's some people that come along and says, oh, that's really interesting. But I believe there's many gods. I believe there's many paths to God. I believe and there's lots of gods, lots of paths. So just who do you think you are to say there's one God? Me? I'm just Pastor John. I'm a big giant nobody. But there's one somebody, and he says that he and he alone is God. If you don't like that, take it up with him. Back in the day, remember they were in Egypt. And in Egypt, they had a God for anything and everything. Just imagine it. They had it. All kinds of fake gods, all kinds of fake goddesses. Really, they're just demons masquerading as gods. The Bible says behind every false god, there's a demon that's pretended to be a god. He's not the real god. God is the only god. Everything else is a cheap imitation knockoff of the one true god. C.S. Lewis coined this term that he called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is when we read the Bible and they go, oh, they were so primitive. They were so stupid. They worship gods like Asherah. They worship Baal. They worship Moloch. How, how futile were they to think like that? I have evolved. I've been enlightened. I'm so much smarter. That's chronological snobbery. Because we don't worship Baal or Moloch. But how about the god or goddess of sex? How about the God or goddess of fame, of money, of pleasure, of comfort, of power, of beauty? You name the God. I can stand up here all day and go through them. Do we worship any of these things? And really to answer that question, because you're probably saying, no, no, I don't. I don't worship that God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a sexual problem? Have you ever had a financial problem? Have you ever had a relational problem? Have you ever had an emotional problem? Have you ever had an employment problem? If you answered yes to any of those... At least at one point in your life, if not right now, you're worshiping a false god. And so all Satan has to do is rebrand old gods as new gods and then we buy them. God says, one God, I'm it. Now as believers, if you're a believer, if you call yourself a Christian, then we are in a covenantal relationship with God. We don't use words like covenantal. Here, let me translate that word covenantal into modern day terminology. No cheating. That's what that means. No cheating. So when we worship another God rather than the one true God, we're cheating on him. It's like a husband that cheats on his wife or a wife that cheats on her husband. 
Now, I know for absolutely certain there's some, some in this room that know that pain all too well. But that's exactly what we do to God when we worship anything or anyone other than Him. And there's some that would say, well, I'm not cheating on God. I'm just going to visit this other God for a couple hours. How would that work in a marriage? I'm just going to visit somebody else for a couple hours. That, that, would, that would crush your spouse. Some would say, it's so very unloving of God to say that. No, it is the most loving thing that a loving God can do. The question is, who is your God? I said this some time ago, but the second most important decision you ever make in your life, who will you marry? That's the second most important thing you question you will ever answer. The most important question, who is your God? Who's your God? Some of you say, well, it's Jesus. Well, the Jews in the Old Testament would say, it's Yahweh. Here's the deal. Same guy. Same guy. Okay? What you need to do is come to the, with grasp, but there can be a difference between the actual God and your functional God. Right? You can say you worship the actual God. At the same time, you run to a functional God when things get tough. Because they would say, we worship Yahweh. At the same time, they're lying, they're stealing, they're committing adultery, they're coveting. You and I are so very prone to have a functional God that is different than the one true God. The way it works like this, we, we have something that comes into our life and it frustrates us. Where do we run? Where do we run? What we do is, we, 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 or, or what we do is we think that we're God and the entire universe revolves around us. We run to functional gods. We, we run to false saviors. We go to gods that are not God. We go to saviors that do not save. And what happens is we are enslaved to these false gods. But fortunately for us, to the glory of God, He loves to set people free. He, he loves to set people free, but then we are free to, to live free. But God helps us in this living free. We have to walk with him in this freedom if we're ever truly going to live free. But what destroys a father's heart is when the children of God who've been set free, they don't want to be free. The Bible uses terms like adoption. And here's my kids right here, three of which were adopted into my family. How heartbroken would I be if those kids say, I don't want to live with you, Dad. I don't want to live in your house. I don't want to eat your food. I want to go on myself. I can do better than with you. That would crush me as a father. I don't want that for my kids. But that's exactly what we do to God. We choose to worship false gods and false saviors. So you're thinking, here's the question. Why do people who have been set free choose not to, to live free? I ask that question, but do this. Don't think of anybody else. Because when, when a preacher preaches like this, I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, this message is for so-and-so. They should really be here to hear this. But you know what? I want you to think of yourself. Think of yourself and nobody else. Why do you, why do I choose not to live free when I've been set free? Why? The Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore... And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, don't go stick your neck back in that yoke of slavery. You were a slave to it. Don't go back there. I'm going to give you three reasons why people stick their neck back in the yoke of slavery. And then I'm going to ask you two questions here that hopefully will lead you to freedom. Here's, here's three reasons that people remain in slavery. Reason number one, they say, I can't change. I can't change. That's what people say. 
People believe they are who they are and they will never change. But this is what you need to know. Jesus changes people. He does. The thing that so many people know, uh, there's so many people that know about Jesus, but then Jesus isn't making the change that, that they want to change. Because that individual, the truth is they don't want Jesus to change them. Hey, I know Jesus. I can't change. Why? Because I like the way this, this is working for me. They're happy being slaves. Because God freed the children of Israel, right? They freed them out of Israel. They're wandering through the desert and they go, hey, let's go back. Let's go back to Egypt. Remember we had leeks and onions? How great was that? Leeks and onions. We don't want this manna stuff. We want leeks and onions. It was so good. You also had a slave master's whip on your back too. Remember that? Why do people do that? Here's the reason. Slavery's comfortable. Slavery's comfortable. That's all they know. All they know is slavery. It is uncomfortable to change. And so people will do anything not to be uncomfortable. Even remain in slavery. Even harm themselves. Hey, Pastor John, are you saying that people will harm themselves so that they don't change? And they'll even remain in slavery? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. People fear change more than they fear slavery. People know what slavery is. We know what that is. We've lived with that our whole life. What we don't know is what freedom looks like. People know what their past is, and even though they don't like it, they, they, what they don't know is what does the future look like living free without that sin? People would rather go with what they know than trust the Lord who sets you free. Here's the second reason. Second reason why people remain in slavery. They'll say, this is just who I am. I am who I am, right? That's what people say. My past has made me the way that I am, and this is just the way I am. Really, it's the same as the first question, the first reason. To, to, but to the person that's stuck in it, it seems so different. So what happens is something happened to me in the past and has molded me to who I am today, and I just am who I, who I am. This now becomes my identity. My sin actually becomes my identity, and, I, and this is what I love, and it's so precious to me. And if I change, well, then that means my friends won't see me the way they see me. My family won't see me the way they see me. My coworkers, neighbors, they won't see me who, the way that I am. And if I start worshiping the one true God and I change, they might criticize me. They, they might point their fingers at me. They might disown me. So what I need to do, I need to be true to myself. That's what people say. And so what happens is rather than change, we re return to enslaving habits. What's that look like? When I get stressed out, I download porn. When I get frustrated, I pour myself a drink. When I get upset, I rage. When things aren't going all that well, I eat. It's the same thing. The same old thing. And it just keeps repeating itself. Here's the third reason why people remain in slavery. The past were the good old days. Ever heard somebody say that? Oh, that the past was the good old days. God gets you out of a situation. You're away from that situation and you look back and go, oh, that was the good old days. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the good old days. They were never the good old times. They will never be the good old times. If you go back there tomorrow... They're still going to be horrible. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've counseled some woman that was in a bad dating relationship and the guy that she's dating is a complete loser and she breaks up with him. 
only to find out a week later she went back to him. What are you doing? We would look at that situation. Are you crazy? Don't do that. But then we do the same exact thing with our sin. The good old days were never the good old days. They'll never be the good old days. But here's a question that sets us free. Here's question number one. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you given Jesus your sin? Is he your God? Did you know that Jesus is God? If you don't know this, I need you to know Jesus is God. He's the only God. I can say it 12 more times if that helps you. Jesus is God. And you know, Jesus died. Well, then why did God die? The answer? For sinners. That's us. Jesus, who is God, died for sinners. If you're not a Christian, your biggest issue is not that your, your behavior. Your biggest issue is not your conduct. Your biggest issue is your God. That issue has to get settled before anything can change. Give yourself to Jesus, and Jesus will set you free. And then commit your life to him. But here's a question for all the Christians in the room. Are you ready? Here you go, Christians. Do you live for Jesus? Do you live for Jesus? Does he determine every decision you'll make? Let me just tell you, he is a way, 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 way better God God than you and I. He just is. So if you live your life for him, he determines the steps you take. He determines which way you go. Because after all, he created you. And he died for you. That you be able to, to give him your life, but then live your life for him. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I beg you, give your life to him now. Because here's the truth. Every single one of us, we're all sinners. Everyone, every man, every woman, the nicest, sweetest person you've ever met in your life, sinner. The mass murderer, sinner. Everyone in between, sinner. That's us. And Jesus came and died for sinners. Why? Because our sin separates us from God. And the wage of sin is death. That means being separated from God for eternity. But God also, the Bible also said, but yet while we're still sinners, Jesus died. It's not that we clean ourselves up and then, oh, God will save you because you're so good. No. God saves us when we're at our worst. When Jesus died on the cross, that's for every rotten, nasty thing I've ever done or ever thought. And the same is true for you. And the Bible has this amazing promise, best promise you've ever heard in your life. It says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Call on Jesus. It's not about you being a good person because you're not. I'm not. Only God is good. His name is Jesus. And if you call on him, he will save you. For most, it's a simple prayer. It's saying something along the lines of, God, save me. I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do. I want to give you my life. Thank you for saving me. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.